Thanks to you at home for joining us. As you are probably aware, there is a balloon in the sky. It is a big balloon, about the size of two school buses, according to the Pentagon. It traveled from China to the Aleutian Islands of Alaska late last week through northwest Canada until finally being spotted somewhere over Montana on Wednesday. Chinese officials today said that the balloon was a civilian airship used mainly for weather research and that it had just innocently been blown off course. But the Pentagon says that they are confident that it is a surveillance balloon, you know, for spying, flying at about 60,000 feet above ground and moving eastward across the continental U.S. The Pentagon has yet to confirm the balloon's latest sightings, sighting, but the National Weather Service in Kansas City, in Kansas City, Missouri, said earlier that they have several reports of a large balloon on the horizon and that the balloon is not one of their weather balloons. In neighboring Kansas, Senator Roger Marshall said that the balloon was above his state. Pentagon has yet to confirm that. Now, the U.S. has been tracking the balloon since at least Tuesday when President Biden was first briefed about it. While Biden was initially inclined to shoot it down, the Pentagon recommended against doing so, saying that doing so would cause significant debris that could cause civilian injuries or deaths on the ground. Today, as a result, Secretary of State Antony Blinken postponed his weekend trip to China. That trip was going to be the first trip in roughly five years by an American Secretary of State. The presence of this surveillance balloon over uh, the United States um, in our skies is a clear violation of our sovereignty, a clear violation of international law, and clearly unacceptable. Job one is getting it out of our airspace. That's a reminder that this thing is still in American airspace where officials say it could remain for several days. NBC News has learned tonight that the U.S. is taking precautionary measures to weaken the balloon's surveillance capabilities, including using counterintelligence measures to obscure its views and physically moving things out of its path. And we do not know exactly what it is doing up there, but we can guess. The Pentagon wouldn't get into specifics, but said that it is maneuverable, and typically spy balloons fly over sensitive areas to collect information. Tonight... The Pentagon is confirming that a second balloon is currently transiting Latin America and that it is also a Chinese surveillance balloon. As for the one currently hovering over the continental U.S., we do not know what it was looking for in Montana, but it just so happens that Montana is home to one of America's three nuclear missile silo fields, which is interesting. Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene has thoughts on what to do about the balloon, advocating for it to be shot down and saying in rural America, there aren't people everywhere. There's land. My next guest might disagree with that. Joining us now is Democratic Senator John Tester of Montana. He's also the chairman of the Defense Appropriations Subcommittee. Senator, thank you so much for being here tonight. I'll get right to it. When did you first learn about this balloon, and how did you learn of it? Wow, uh, it was uh, I, le- I learned I learned yesterday is when I, uh, when I learned about it, and uh, and quite honestly, um, I was very disturbed by what I had heard, where we had a surveillance balloon that was flying over Montana, a place where people appreciate freedom and, and privacy, a place where we have 150 ICBMs, uh, and and. A, bal- a balloon that was uh, uh, that was put into space by by China. Um, 
this is a very uh, a bad situation, quite frankly. Uh, China has been trying to replace us as the world's economic leader and military leader for some time now. And uh, they've been done some very provo provocative things around Taiwan and in the Indo-Pacific. They do things on the Internet all the time that uh, are not helpful. Um, and so uh, we need to get to the bottom of all this. We need to get to find out why decisions were made that were made. And I'm not saying they were wrong decisions, but we need to find out why the decisions that the military made were made the way they were. Um, a lot of that information can't be given outside. Uh, some of it can be, and we'll get as much of it as we can out to the public. But but in the end, we need to find out what has happened, why it happened, and make sure this never happens again. We, we need to absolutely make sure this country is safe. And uh, and the surveillance balloon, I think, uh, at least from my perspective, compromises that somewhat. Senator, I know that a lot of your colleagues on Capitol Hill have been fairly aggressive in terms of their suggestion of what should be done here. They've been saying, shoot it down. You have not publicly advocated for that. Do you agree with the Biden administration's rationale here? That's why we're having the hearing, to find out what the rationale that was used to determine whether to shoot it down or let it fly, what was done to try to uh, make it so that it was ineffective in gathering information. Um, and and that that's all very uh, important information. Um, uh, look, uh, I, I'm not there sitting in the seat that our military generals and uh, are. Uh, the truth of the matter, I put a lot of faith in them to do the right thing. But we also have to make sure they have to be held accountable for the decisions they do make. And uh, that's what the hearing is going to be. Hopefully we get that done as soon as possible. I know that, that, you know, the Chinese have been aggressively uh, pursuing, it sounds like, uh, American airspace, but also American land. I know that you have been very engaged in the issue of Chinese buying up farmland in your own state. Can you talk a little bit more about that and your concerns about Chinese domination as far as agriculture? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, I think it, it only makes common sense that if, if we've got folks who are enemies of ours, and, and as I said, China wants, to, China wants to replace us in the world as a military and economic leader, that we ought not be providing them avenues to do that. Senator Rounds, Republican from South Dakota, myself, have a bill that we're pushing through that hopefully uh, we will get to the president's desk very, very soon that prevents uh, folks like China from buying farmland. Um, there are plenty of folks that are farming the ground right now that um, believe this has already happened. And if it has, that's yet another problem, because anytime you have a foreign adversary that's buying farmland, that not only compromises our, our food supply, it compromises our national security. And we are going to be pushing hard in a bipartisan way to get that bill across the finish line. Uh, and I think this, this uh, surveillance balloon only adds fuel to that urgency. I do want to, I know, and I, I, I think you have, you know, very nicely articulated your concerns about this, uh, the threat, potential threat here you see in terms of national security. But there has been a degree of alarm on the part of the right as far as it concerns this balloon and China in general that I think a lot of people see as unnecessarily nativist, unnecessarily isolationist. I mean, do you have any thoughts about the people who have been saying, oh, this balloon could be from Wuhan. It might be filled with, you know, COVID or, you know, any number of paranoid conspiracy theories that as of right now seem largely unfounded. Do you have thoughts on that kind of rhetoric at this moment? 
Well, the, the worst thing we could do is play politics to their national security. That's absolutely a non-starter. The second thing is, is we need to get to the truth. We need to find out what the truth is. There's all sorts of theories and ideas and uh, thoughts out there by different people that don't know what they're talking about. The bottom line is we want to have people come to this hearing that do know what they're talking about and can justify what's going on and what has happened uh, and how many times this has happened before where we've had a surveillance balloon potentially fly over this country. And so it, it, it's, uh, look, conspiracy theories can, can go all over. There is one thing that I believe to be a fact, though. China is our pacing threat in this world. We need to treat it as such. And so when they send a surveillance balloon over this country, it isn't to pick up information on the weather. It's to surveil us. It's to pick up secrets, to find out what we're doing. Uh, this is our airspace, not theirs. That is completely improper to do. And, and we just need to get the military in to tell us what the actions, why the actions that were done were done and find out what's going to happen in the future if this happens again. We do have reporting from Politico that the United States of America also uses balloons for surveillance, potentially in on, uh, you know, in the airspace of other countries. Does that change your sort of thinking about how aggressively we need to pursue this if this is something that's done by America as well? I am not aware of that myself. Um, I have not been briefed on any of that happening, but I will tell you it doesn't diminish it. We knows what happened. We saw it in Montana. We have a surveillance balloon that is floating across this country. We need to treat it as a real threat, and, and we need to do what we can do to stop it from ever happening again. Senator John Tester of Montana, thank you, sir, for your time. Really appreciate it, and thanks for all you're doing. Have a good day. You evening. bet, Alex. Thank you. In 1945, the crew of the USS New York spotted what they thought was a Japanese balloon weapon following their ship. The captain ordered that they shoot it down. It was only after firing at it did they realize they were actually shooting at the planet Venus. Now, those balloons in 1945 and this balloon surveillance today are two very different things. But I wanted to bring up that history because even trained military professionals have trouble discerning this stuff, which is what made former President Trump's son's tweet this morning so very concerning. At 11.21 a.m., Donald Trump Jr. tweeted, if Joe Biden and his administration are too weak to do the obvious and shoot down an enemy surveillance balloon, perhaps we just let the good people of Montana do their thing. An hour after that tweet, the balloon was sighted over northwest Missouri, which is very far from Montana. So Don Jr. was effectively telling his followers in Montana to shoot their guns in the air at a target that was not actually there, to just shoot at whatever they thought was the balloon, at an object 60,000 feet in the air that they couldn't have hit even if it was above them. Tonight, Georgia Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene echoed the same civilian call to arms, saying, quote, it would be great if an average Joe shot it down because China Joe won't. Now, Don Jr. and Marjorie Taylor Greene may be the more, more, more extreme than, than most human beings, but they were not alone. Republican congresspeople and senators and the former president himself have all been jumping up and down all day, urging someone to shoot it down. Shooting down this balloon may be how this ultimately ends, but it is risky. The Pentagon's stated reason for not shooting down the balloon is the danger it could pose to civilians on the ground. 
either because this giant thing lands on some poor, unsuspecting civilian or because whatever is used to shoot it out of the sky hits a civilian. But I think this Republican instinct to shoot first and ask questions later, particularly as it relates to China, that goes beyond the actual logistics and geopolitical situation our country happens to be in right now. I know it is difficult to remember because President Trump has said so has had so many scandals and said so many things since. But when Trump was a candidate for president, anti-China sentiment was basically a core part of his platform. Let's say China. 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 Trump was truly obsessed with China, but he wasn't obsessed with real issues between the U.S. and China. He was obsessed with using China as a punching bag, as something he could point to at his rallies and get the crowd to cheer. China has always been one of Trump's go-tos, but it became really his favorite thing at the start of the pandemic. It's a disease, without question, has more names than any disease in history. I can name... Kung flu, Wuhan, Now, Wuhan was catching on, coronavirus, right? Kung flu, yeah. The Republican Party loves a punching bag, especially when that punching bag is not American. And the party that has built its platform on nativism and isolationism also loves to fearmonger about foreign threats. So when an opportunity arose, literally 60,000 feet in the air, the GOP had a field day. The next balloon might be filled with another virus. Pop, droplets all over. We're all on ventilators again. Now, how do we know the next balloon isn't loaded up with bioweapons? Just a little seepage over Nebraska. There goes the heartland. What is your greatest concern as we track something that is the size of three buses now that China says was taken by wind, wind that we can't substantiate. My concern is that the uh, federal government obviously doesn't know what's in that balloon. Is that bioweapons in that balloon? Is it, did that balloon take off from Wuhan? You know, we don't know anything about that balloon. That was the Republican chair of the House Oversight Committee. And he's right about one thing. He doesn't know anything about that balloon. But he did not say that. Instead, he said, maybe it's a bioweapon. Maybe it's from Wuhan. Shoot it down. Also, blame Biden. This balloon is tailor-made for the modern-day GOP. We will talk in just a minute with the top Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee. He is a member of the Gang of Eight. His staff was actually briefed on this today. And we will get the lowdown on what is actually going on from him directly coming up next. Oh my, are you serious? President Trump just called in, guys. President Trump, you're not going to believe this crowd. Everyone in Arizona cares about election integrity. Tell them hello. Well, hello, everybody. And it sounds like an Those were throngs of Republicans in Arizona this weekend, cheering for two candidates who both lost their most recent elections. It has been nearly three months since Republican election denier Carrie Lake lost her race for governor of Arizona. Just like Donald Trump, Carrie Lake refused to concede that election and made a failed attempt to overturn its results in court. And just like Donald Trump, Carrie Lake refuses to go away. 
This week, Carrie Lake was in Washington to meet with the Republican Party's Senate campaign arm to discuss a possible run for Senate in 2024. Later this month, she is headed to Iowa and what some have speculated could be a nascent start to a presidential run. In other words, despite failing to win her first and only election, Carrie Lake is keeping her options very much open. Maybe even opening some options that most people wouldn't. As Ashley Parker at The Washington Post notes today, Lake is part of a broader trend within the Republican Party to embrace candidates who lose elections. And it's not just American politicians benefiting from that trend. Tonight, the former right-wing Brazilian president, Jair Bolsonaro, who was recently accused of attending a coup-plotting meeting after losing his own election, Bolsonaro is headlining an event for the pro-Trump group Turning Points USA. In a party whose leaders refuse to accept the legitimate results of elections, losing has become a badge of honor, a way to channel the grievance and frustration of voters who falsely believe that Democrats and foreign governments are rigging elections. Joining us now is Ashley Parker, senior national political correspondent for The Washington Post. Ashley, thanks for being with me tonight. I found this such uh, a, a, a uh, a timely and deeply relevant <laughs> assessment of what's going on in American politics. The, the the label loser is something that it feels like a crop of candidates refuse to wear, a scarlet letter that is uh, unimaginable, I guess, in some corners. Can you talk a little bit about the way in which the definition of losing an election has changed in the last 20 years? Well, it's both the definition and how politicians, particularly that subset you just highlighted, these sort of MAGA conservative Republicans in many cases are choosing to behave after losing. So typically, if you lost Democrat or Republican, you could certainly try to, to run again, um, as it seems like Carrie Lake may do. But you sort of quietly slunk off. You know, you retreated into obscurity until, as a Republican uh, strategist put it to me, you became a question on Jeopardy. But what we're seeing now uh, with these Republicans is, first of all, when they lose, um, a lot of them don't admit that they lost. That's one of the key things. Um, you know, they, they claim they won. They claim that they're still fighting. Uh, they deny the results of the election. And then they become these sort of warriors, cultural warriors and avatars um, for the grievances of their base. And so instead of, again, typically a, a losing candidate would not headline a major convention so shortly after a loss, um, they are lionized and held up, um, again, by this section of, of the Republican base as sort of channeling them and channeling their grievances, whether it's against the establishment, um, the media, or whoever else they believe has done them wrong. Ashley, it's, you know, when you talk about what the base wants and the way in which the losing helps these candidates channel grievance, it, it reminds me of the deplorables comment that Hillary Clinton made and the way the previously seen, um, you know, negatives have been turned into tools of empowerment, right? We are the deplorables. If you think we're losers, we're actually winners. It's a way of sort of upending the narrative and, and, and and basically channeling rage that seems so central to the Republican base at this point. I mean, I think this this tells us as much about the candidates as it does the party itself. Do you think? That's right. I mean, first of all, there's a an element of uh, reclamation going on, right? I mean, when President Biden, after a lot of research, coined the term 
MAGA ultra conservatives, a lot of those MAGA ultra conservatives proudly said, yes, we are. Um, but again, the sort of rage that they are channeling is a is a sense of victimhood um, that Donald Trump really honed and perfected. And he has managed to sort of divorce, which is hard to do, um, you know, being a being a victim from being a loser. So his argument is sort of we're victims, we were treated unfairly, but we were still winners. And you have to keep in mind, he's trying to do that now that he's lost, of course. But he even did that when he actually won. He won in 2016 and still acted as if he was a victim, right? He he claimed that his margin over Hillary was much larger than the media said. He claimed that his fairly large Inauguration Day crowds were much larger than they actually were. Um, so it's really that sense of victimization uh, that, that these candidates are tapping into um, among this conservative base. It's also that, you know, tapping into victimization and grievance, even if you lost your election, is profitable. You point out that Carrie Lake, I think it's since she lost, has packed in about $2.5 million into her coffers, um, going and headlining Republican conferences and gatherings in Arizona and elsewhere. And I feel like that's sort of central to all of this, right? These folks aren't exiting stage right because you know, not simply because they don't want to be called losers, not simply because they want to be champions of those people who feel marginalized and feel like victims, but also because it lines their it lines their pockets pretty nicely. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about the ways in which the fundraising mechanisms, even for losers, can those wheels continue to turn well after the last ballot is counted? Oh, it's incredibly profitable. Um, it, as I mentioned, that figure for Carrie Lake, but also if you look at a lot of the fundraising emails that come out on behalf of former President Trump, whenever he again is sort of taking that stance of being both martyr and victim with which he's so comfortable railing against the fake news media, Marxists and communists, um, you know, witch hunts and hoaxes, a rigged election. Those those emails he sends out uh, are often pretty effective appeals for money. And so what you're seeing, again, is something that is being fueled fairly potently on both sides. Right from the bottom, you have the voters and the base uh, very eager to see these leaders kind of take up a cause on their behalf. And then you see the leaders themselves uh, quite eager to profit from taking up that cause. Ashley Parker of The Washington Post, thank you as always for joining us, Ashley. Great reporting tonight. Thanks for having me. We, we have lots more to come tonight, including an update on one of the biggest er outrages of the Trump era, migrant families who were ripped apart, children separated from their parents. We have new reporting on the Biden administration's efforts to right that wrong. And that balloon is still in the air, hovering over U.S. airspace. We will speak to the new top Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee about what he knows. That's coming up next. I am sitting in my driveway here in Billings, Montana. And right now, there is a ground stop on our airport. And this thing is up in the sky. And I have no idea what it is. And for those of you who think uh, this might just be the moon, it is not the moon. Nope, it is not the moon. 
That giant white sphere seen floating over Billings, Montana yesterday is a Chinese surveillance balloon, confirmed so by the U.S. government. The balloon, U.S. officials said, is maneuverable, and they say the intent is clear that the balloon is for surveillance, and they noted it is following a path that includes a number of sensitive military and nuclear sites. Pilots flying at high altitudes over Kansas, Missouri, and Montana have all spotted it. And this has now become a very visual diplomatic crisis for the U.S. and China. But this kind of thing has apparently happened before. At a press briefing yesterday, Pentagon officials said that this type of activity, meaning surveillance balloons, it has been observed over the past several years here in the U.S., including, quote, prior to the Biden administration. And while a spy balloon over American airspace is a violation by China of international law, America is reportedly working on spy balloons of its own. Last summer, Politico reported that in an effort to rise above competition from China and Russia, the Pentagon was building high-altitude inflatables capable of flying up to 90,000 feet, and that these would be added to the Pentagon's extensive surveillance network. China has also complained, as of last year, about American surveillance activity over its own territory, saying in a report from the foreign ministry that five U.S. naval vessels cruise near China's shore every day, while U.S. reconnaissance planes have flown some 800 times near China's territory and repeatedly violated its airspace. Joining me now is Democratic Congressman from Connecticut, Jim Himes. He is the top Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee and has been briefed on the situation surrounding this Chinese surveillance balloon. Congressman Himes, thanks for being here. I'm just going to get right to it. In terms of this balloon, are we in danger at present right now, as far as you can tell? Does this balloon, should this balloon be taken down immediately? Alex, uh, we are in no danger from this balloon. Um, and if we were, or if there was a risk that we were, it would have been taken down immediately. Um, this is not a new technology. Uh, we've seen this before. To my knowledge, this is the first time we've seen it over the middle of the continental United States. But we, we, we know what these things are. They're not a danger. If they were, they would be shot down. I, I, I would make the point that... Um, um, it's obviously very embarrassing for the Chinese, and it's actually, you know, pretty aggressive of the Chinese. We, we spy on each other. That'll come as a surprise to nobody. We try to steal their secrets. They try to steal ours. Um, floating a balloon over the continental United States is pretty aggressive. Um, I, I'll just make this point as somebody who lives in the world of intelligence, because I got an awful lot of friends and colleagues and others who just want to blam, shoot this thing down and teach them a lesson or two. I will tell you that there could be enormous, enormous value in our actually securing this thing and finding out precisely what it is that there's there. So, um, you know, how this thing plays out in the next couple of days is still an open question. But, uh, you know, to those who are urging big Hollywood-like explosions, uh, take it from me, uh, there are some things we'd love to know uh, that might be aboard that balloon. Congressman, it's the size of two buses, right? This is not a small object. And it's flying 60,000 feet in the air, which is, yes, high, but the naked eye, a, a telescope, you know, any kind of uh, sight-enhancing uh, tool can show you what it is. Do you think that the Chinese in intended for the American audience to see this thing? Well, that's a really good question. I've been sort of thinking about that all day because this really is an embarrassment. I mean, um, you know, we, we go way out of our way. Um, to make sure that the Chinese and the Russians and the Iranians and the North Koreans don't know how we gather, uh, collect intelligence. Um, and as you point out, here's something that anybody with a pair of binoculars can see. And more intriguingly to me, based you know what I just said, um, you know we go to immense lengths to protect 
the technology and the other methods and sources that we have to collect intelligence. So the fact that they've just sent us a slow-moving target um, that, that it won't be that hard to secure if we want to do it is, 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 is really intriguing to me. And I, you know, I want to, I want to sort of stop here to say, let's, let's, let's not let the conspiracy theories run wild. There's no reason to believe that there's bioweapons aboard or viruses or anything else. Um, I, my, my, my best guess is that this is a mistake because like I said, we may end up owning this technology uh, in a matter of a couple of days. Well, yeah, and it sounds like from the reporting, at least, and and especially in Politico, that the U.S. is expanding its investment in high altitude surveillance balloons to compete with Russia and China. So it sounds like we're sort of doing the same thing here. Well, you know, as I said in the very beginning, it'll surprise nobody to know that both China and, and the United States and Russia and North Korea and Great Britain and France and pretty much every other country on the planet um, works hard to figure out ways to collect intelligence on their potential enemies. Um, and so you know, without going too far down a path, I can't go down about exactly what we're researching and looking into. Of course, of course, we're exploring whatever technologies might give us an edge. That's our responsibility as people concerned with national security. And by the way, if you've ever seen a photograph of, for example, you know, a military base in Afghanistan, there's some chance you may have noticed a balloon hovering above that military base. Again, no big secret there, but, you know, there are capabilities that closer in, um, you know, assets like a balloon might be able to show, uh, which is why sometimes when you see pictures of our bases abroad, you might see a balloon um, tethered and, and, and observing what's happening below. Were you surprised that the Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, postponed his trip to China, I think presumably over this incident? And, and how do you read the postponement of that? Um, I wasn't surprised and I was actually pleased. I think um, that, that that's exactly the right response. Um, there, there has to be a response because we don't want to see Chinese assets hovering over the United States on a regular basis. So I think a response is necessary. You know, as I said a couple of times, I hope we get our hands on this um, on this particular piece of equipment. Uh, I think that ought to be technologically feasible. I'd rather get my hands on it whole than be picking up burnt pieces of metal from 100 square miles of, uh, of, of crash site. Um, but, yeah, I think it would have been pretty embarrassing for the secretary of state to show up in China while one of the Chinese balloons is, is hovering over Missouri. One last question for you. I mean, I, we have pretty groundbreaking and sophisticated technology. People, people look at drones, undetectable in airspace. Why a balloon? I mean, they move slowly. They're the size of buses. People can see them. They're creating, uh, you know, uh, a bilateral crisis. What about this technology makes it so enviable that we're trying to compete with Russia and China on it? Well, um, again, I don't want to go too, too, too far down a, a, a path that would you know, expose the way we think about these things. But the first part of your question is exactly right. Why a balloon? They're slow moving. They're easy to see. Why a balloon? No question here who's at fault and what they were up to, right? Uh, in terms of why you might want to place an asset, a collection asset, closer rather than something thousands of miles above the ground, um, again, without betraying and every, everything, you know, uh, we're interested in radio waves, right? Some radio waves are, are, are strong, some are weak. Um, and in some cases, it, it might be better to be closer uh, to a source of uh, radio emission. So I, that's just one. And, and, you know, I don't even know what's aboard this balloon. So I'm not telling you anything that I know about on the balloon. But, you know, there's a whole bunch of reasons why you might want to have a collection asset a little closer uh, than something that uh, is, is, is orbiting in outer space or that you could fly in a very 
high altitude manned aircraft. So, you know, I sort of get it. Um, but boy, what an embarrassment. Um, again, we go to great lengths to uh, to protect the, the sources and methods we use to collect uh, to collect intelligence. Uh, and, and, and boy, what a what a failure on the part of the Chinese here. Congressman Jim Himes, I will never think about balloons in the same way again. Thank you for joining us tonight. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Still more to come tonight, including the ongoing effort to reunite migrant families who were torn apart by the Trump administration. Plus, just when you thought you'd heard everything George Santos had to lie about, we got a doozy today. Stay tuned. In June of 2018, Trump's Department of Justice announced that it had separated more than 2,000 families under a new zero-tolerance policy to deter migration at the southern border. American citizens quickly began protesting and politicians began condemning the practice as immoral. The administration separated so many families that government facilities meant to house separated children looked like this. Kids packed within overcrowded metal fences with foil blankets sleeping on the floor, sometimes with soiled clothing. Children learning how to change the diapers of infants they had just met. No access to toothbrushes or soap, and in some cases, showers. None of them had any clue whether they would ever see their parents again. And for many of those kids, it would take years the ACLU sued the administration, getting a judge to order Trump to stop the process and to reunite the families within 30 days. But the administration forced parents to leave the country with or without their children. Many of them were deported childless, making a reunification Herculean in terms of task. By the time Trump's 30-day reunification deadline expired, hundreds of children remained separated. But that number increased as litigation continued because, as it turned out, the Trump administration actually began separating families as early as 2017. And they did not exactly do a good job of record keeping. In the end, courts and the Biden administration uncovered about 4,000 known separations between 2017 and 2021, though the ACLU says there might be more. For the past two years, President Biden and a task force he assembled have been trying to reconnect the families who remain separated. And this week, we got an update. The Biden administration and its task force have reunited 600 of those families. But 998 children remain separated to this day. Five years after Trump was forced to end his separation policy, nearly 1,000 children are still without their mothers and fathers. Is there any hope at this point of getting all of them back to their families. Joining us now is Lee Gallant, Deputy Director of the ACLU's Immigrants' Rights Project. He has been fighting to reunite these separated families since 2018. Lee, thank you so much for being here. I know I've talked to you about this for years now, and I suppose it is good news. I mean, it definitely is good news that hundreds of children have been reunited, but a thousand of them still without their parents. Can you talk a little bit about what this reunification process is like and how and why it is so difficult. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. We, we have talked about this and we talked about it years ago. And who would have thought we were still going to be in this situation when we're talking about little kids who were separated, hundreds and hundreds of kids below the age of five who now have spent maybe four fifths of their life without their parents. So one of the reasons we haven't been able to f even find all the families 
We're still looking for 100 families just to make contact with them. We had hoped the Biden administration would move quicker to try and reunite families, but that's sort of water under the bridge. Now the process is moving, but it's been a slow process, unfortunately. And so even though we know where most of the families are now, we need to get them reunited because every day they're without their parents is unbelievable. And as you said, it's been a Herculean effort just to find the parents. We've had people on the ground, uh, you know, the, our co-counsel, I mean, our, our steering committee has been working on that. It's just been unbelievable. And, and I think the challenge now for us, and that's why I appreciate you doing this segment, is to make the public realize that this is not all over. As you said, people took to the streets in the beginning. It's the worst thing that I'd ever seen in 30 years. But now I think everyone thinks, well, it's over. It's over. And it's not over for two reasons. One is exactly what you said, is that 900 plus families are still not together. But the other part of it is, even when they're brought back together, there is such deep-seated trauma that we have so much work to make the, do to make these families whole. I mean, I'm working with these families and when they're, when they're reunited, a three-year-old, a four-year-old just stands by the window looking to see if men are going to come and take them away again. I mean, I think as parents, we all know, we, we swear our children know there's no monsters in your room, we'll leave a light on. But these children actually have experienced people coming and taking them away in the middle of the night. So it's not just that we need to get these thousand back together again, but we really need to do everything we can so they're not re-separated, they're not been sent back to persecution they're given mental health help. They're given some compensation for what they went through. I'm just, I am so shocked that we're talking about the, the youngest children here. I'm sure there's a range of ages, but is it really some of these three-year-olds and four-year-olds that still haven't been reunited with their families? And is anybody, yeah, I mean, what conditions are they in now? Are they with foster care? I mean, where are they living if they're not with their parents? Yes, what we know is... And you know, the Biden administration puts the number at 3,900 that were separate. That's because those were legally the ones who were part of the class. We believe that there were, we know that we're over 5,500 separate and we're fighting to get them all relief because some of them were not put into the lawsuit, into the class action by the judge because of very, very minor crimes the parent may have committed decades ago. So of those 5,500, we know that there were approximately 900 that were under the age of five years old when they were separated. Some were less than a year old. So now we're talking years and years that they had not been with their parents. They're with foster care. They're with relatives that they never knew. They could be with a friend of the family. And a lot of them don't even remember their parents anymore. So we have this situation of the children saying, well, this person I'm living with seems okay. And I don't really remember my parents. I mean, it's just, it's just heartbreaking that these children are not growing up without their parents. And uh, you know, the focus has been on the children, understandably, but the parents are just suffering so much because they're feeling so much guilt. The children are being returned to their parents and saying, mommy, daddy, why didn't you stop them from taking me? Didn't you love me enough? Because they're literally watching their parents and as they're being pulled away, begging, don't let them take me, don't let them take me. And of course, the parents are helpless. And sometimes the first thing they literally say when they come back is, why didn't you stop them from taking me? Didn't you love me enough? And it just obviously is breaking these parents' hearts, so they need help as well. 
Lee, I know that, I mean, I, I, as a mother of a three and a five-year-old, it is gut-wrenching to hear all of this. And you would think we would have learned our lesson about the cost of dehumanizing people. But this is occurring against a backdrop where Governor DeSantis is asking for $12 million more million to start continue schlepping migrants to points north with no resources on the ground when they're met. Uh, Governor Abbott of Texas wants to continue this, pro- this process of taking migrants to places they never intended on going. I mean, what does this state of affairs tell you about lessons learned since the Trump, the Trump administration? Yeah, I think you're, you're hitting it exactly right, that it's a dehumanizing effect. I think what's happening is that the discussion is largely turning on aggregate numbers and abstract policy arguments, and the human dimension is getting lost. And I think America rebelled against, the whole world rebelled against what Trump did because they could see viscerally these children, they could think of their own children. But now the same things, it may not be exactly the same thing where we're literally taking children away from their parents, but there is just egregious things going on. And I think people are not getting upset because these migrants have been so dehumanized. It's, I think we didn't learn the lesson. You're exactly right. And I also fear that the separation stuff is out of sight, out of mind. And until you know, we start focusing, and that's our challenge to remind people it's not over. We still have a thousand families to get back together. And after that, there is so much work to make them whole. But but you're right, it's it's about othering people and dehumanizing them because I, I don't I think when people think of their own child, as you said, a three and a five year old being taken away, that they, they shudder at that. But then when it becomes more abstract, what should we do for them, this and that, you know, people sort of lose focus. And we need to keep focus on the fact that these families have been so uh, wrongly abused. But President Biden said it was a moral stain on the United States. But now I fear that a lot of people are forgetting what happened to these children. And we have little children who haven't seen their parents in four years now. Uh, legal learn of the ACLU. Thank you for everything you are doing. Thank you for reminding us of the moral stain that is very much still here in America. Thanks for yeah. your time and expertise. It's good to see you. You too. We'll be right back. When it comes to the growing list of fabrications made by New York Congressman George Santos, picking the most bizarre one becomes more difficult by the day. By now, you're no doubt familiar with his lies about graduating from colleges that have no record of his attendance and lying about having multiple jobs at top tier Wall Street financial firms. There's also the lie about being a star volleyball player in college and, quote, sacrificing both knees and needing knee replacement surgery because of it. And today, almost like clockwork, we have a new George Santos lie. Bloomberg News reports, citing people familiar with the discussions, that during his most recent run for Congress, George Santos told potential donors that he was a Broadway producer, that he worked on the musical Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. An actual producer for that ill-fated production has denied George Santos's involvement in the show, which ran from 2011 to 2014 and was plagued by multiple serious injuries to actors on set. It closed at a loss of tens of millions of dollars, which makes it all the more weird that George Santos made this claim in the year 2021. Why boast about being a producer on what is widely considered an infamous flop of a show? Why lie about volleyball? and knee replacement surgery. Why lie about any of these things? Only George Santos knows the truth. That is it for us this week.